0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Do you remember King Manasseh? The great monarch of God's people from a long, long time ago? He was bad. King Manasseh was actually one of the worst kings of all time. In fact, later kings among God's people who were wicked were always set next to Manasseh as the standard. They were wicked because they acted like Manasseh, the standard of wickedness. We read in scripture, Manasseh led the Israelites to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And again, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. You may know Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, who was a righteous king, who led Israel in national repentance. But we read this, Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocation with which Manasseh, now long dead, had provoked him. Josiah's righteousness was not enough. Even national repentance was not enough to wipe away the stain of Manasseh. If you go back now to Manasseh's lifetime, you may know that he was taken into captivity for his sins. God sent the king of Assyria, who led him away. Now, knowing all that you know about King Manasseh, let me read you something that Scripture says of him while he was in captivity in Assyria. And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh, Manasseh, that we just talked about, that Manasseh humbled himself greatly. Why is this in Scripture, this shocking turn at the end of his life? Because God wants you to know that he loves humility. He loves it a lot. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The sacrifices of God, says David, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise even in wicked Manasseh. God will not despise humility. The malicious capital of Assyria, which was the infamous Nineveh, When Jonah was sent to preach there to that evil place that in some hundred years would destroy the northern part of God's people, when Jonah arrived and the people repented and the king got up off his throne and removed his royal robe and set out a decree and they covered themselves with sackcloth, when they humbled themselves, you will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. And God did not destroy them with the wrath He said He would destroy them with, because God loves humility. So much so that the reformer Martin Luther, if you ever study into some of his earlier writings, as the Reformation was breaking out, you know that justification by faith alone was that great doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, and Luther discovered it in Romans, and the Psalms actually, but in Romans... Justification by faith alone, but in some of Luther's early developing thought, it almost sounds like justification by humility, which is not right, but you can understand his confusion as he was thinking through these things, because every time he looked at someone justified by faith alone, there was humility, a key characteristic of God's people. He loves humility. What you're going to see in our text today is we are talking about the Philistines, even in our day, if someone is a Philistine, that's bad. That's a pejorative. The Philistines were the enemy of God's people, pagans. They worshiped false gods, including Dagon, as we saw. They slaughter God's people. They continue to be a threat to God's people throughout 1 Samuel. We're talking about the Philistines, wicked as Manasseh. And when the Philistines humble themselves, God saves them because God loves humility. Let's see this in 1 Samuel chapter 6, starting in the very first verse. The ark of the Lord, which had been stolen in battle from Israel, moved into Philistia where it had devastated the land with a plague, or God had through it. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what or how we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it'll be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, or five kings, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart. And two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he, God, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice, and the images of their tumors, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh." There is a very sharp contrast here between the pride that we've seen in the house of Eli. And you may remember Eli's house, it sat at the pinnacle of Israelite culture. It was, Eli was both a judge and a priest. He was over the land. He and his sons, they held such an important, a privileged position among God's actual people. And yet there was pride rife through that house in the sons and their behavior with the sacrifices and elsewhere, also in Eli and not removing his sons. But now as we turn to the Philistines who are pagans, who do not know the true God, they humble themselves in a way that Eli and his house did not. God has put the Philistines right here in this text, and he has them behaving well, even behaving better than his own people, in order to show you how much God loves humility. I mean, the story itself, to its original audience, who would have been Israelites or Jews, is humbling. As humbling as when Jesus came and praised some Gentiles and spoke of their faith as greater than any faith in Israel. That's humbling and offensive. The story itself is humbling because Philistine pagans are doing better than God's people. It's like when you read a story of someone who does not know Christ behaving better than Christians in the church. That's humbling. It happens. That's humbling. The Philistines give glory to God. It's the thing Eli refused to give God. They do it. And God, for his part, is always happy to receive glory. Not just when his people give it to him. He's happy to receive it wherever it is found. Anyone who humbles themselves, he does not despise. So, it's going to be the two headings that we use to walk through this text together. One is going to be the surprise of the Philistines being willing to give glory to Yahweh. They're willing to give glory. And then we'll turn and see the equal surprise that Yahweh is willing to receive that glory even from the Philistines. So let's begin with the Philistines surprising us, their willingness to give glory to Yahweh. And this happens because of three characteristics true of them in this text. The first is at the very beginning, and it's that they are desperate. Look again at verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months we read chapter 5 from the comfort of these nice seats or in our own home. Over the course of 12 verses, you can read it quickly. But it was experience. The agonies, what we think may have been a bubonic plague, possibly, that everywhere the Ark of the Covenant went, God struck them with tumors, perhaps carried by mice, which come into our text here, devastating the land. So maybe the bubonic plague, whatever it is, Large numbers of people are dying. Those who don't die are suffering greatly. And now we read it's happened over seven months. Just think back half a year ago. You were in a different place. Imagine if that whole time you were afraid of dying from a plague. Seven months. Seven, of course, is an important number in the Bible. I don't know God's intention in putting it here. It could be suggesting, as it often does, a completeness That the exile of the ark is now complete, or that the devastation of the land of Philistia is now complete. It is interesting because, as I said, the word that was used previously to talk about the ark's sojourn here in Philistia was the word really for exile. It was a kind of preview of when God's people go to Babylon in exile so many hundreds of years later, but you remember they were in exile in Babylon 70 years. Seven's an important number. Here we have seven months where the ark is in exile. What's very clear in this text is there's a desperation here. The people had consulted their political leaders, the lords, the kings over the five major cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, those five cities. And they finally, the people made the decision, we have to send the ark back. To do so, they don't turn to the kings. It was the kings who recommended just send it to another city, and it didn't work. So now they turn instead to the religious leaders in Philistia. You see that in verse 2. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, we're going to send it back. We just need to know how. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what or how we shall send it to its place. It is an amazing thing because there's literally nothing Israel could have done. As much as they longed for the Ark of God, there's nothing they could have done to get that Ark back. How would they ever convince the Philistines? They lost their army. How would they ever sway the Philistines to send back the Ark? It would never happen, not in a million years. Seven months of God being in their land, and willingly they want to send it back. And their only question is, how do we do it in a non-offensive way? To Yahweh, You know that desperation like this, for many of us, is the birthplace of humility. If you've never really been desperate in your life, then the temptation is to feel like you're fine. Whatever the challenges are that you're facing, you can handle them. Some of you may have more of a type A personality, and you can handle quite a lot of things. So if a trouble comes up, you just pedal to the metal, and you deal with it, and you may have done so successfully for much of your life. But it is a gift of God when He allows you to fail at handling the issues that come into your life, when He allows you to realize that this is how large the circle of things that affect you severely in this life are is, and this is how big your circle of ability is. That's true even when you're accomplishing many things, but it's not until God brings you to a place of desperation and you realize... There's nothing you could do. What can the Philistines do so they just stop dying? They've exhausted their options. They've sent the ark everywhere. Finally, Ekron says, you can't send it here. Desperation, like we find in the king of Nineveh, finally getting up when he hears his land will be overturned, putting off his royal robe. That's what the Philistines are doing here. So, there's a As we see a willingness to return the ark, a willingness to give glory to Yahweh because they're desperate. Notice as well, there's a willingness to return the ark because they are respectful. That stands out in this text. Verse 3 has the religious leaders' response to the question asked them They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Especially in that culture, to send a guest away, empty-handed was considered rude. They are sending away a guest, not the guest they wanted to be in their land, but they're sending Yahweh away, and they are choosing not to be rude, but respectful in how they do it. Of course, he's a deity, they understand that he's a God, they don't know that he's the God, and therefore his wrath needs to be appeased. Hence, they say, there's a need for a guilt offering. It is a sacrifice, some kind of offering to this deity to appease his wrath because of the guilt that they've incurred. The people agree in verse 4, they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And now see the guilt offering which they Suggest They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land. Let me ask you, how do they know that? The answer is, they don't. They really, truly don't. They have no idea. What's happening right here in this text is complete guesswork. Of course, it's a kind of guesswork that they were familiar with. They literally have here diviners. I mean, this was their job, was to try to figure out what gods who didn't even exist thought and felt about what was happening on earth. So they had various ways they would try to figure out what the will of a deity is. That's what they're trying to do here. But of course, all those ways were just invented. Israel had revelation from the one true God. They knew things with certainty. Philistia didn't. So their guesswork goes like this. Well, there's five major cities everywhere we sent the ark. The cities got really messed up. There's five cities, then let's give five images. Of course, there's five cities. Five Im- why not? There's five and there's five. Of course, they end up with ten because there's 5 and 5 but don't think too hard about it they're just saying 5 and 5 those match each other and the things that were afflicting us were tumors so it got to make sense to make 5 of the images tumors maybe it was being carried by rats so let's make 5 rats Let's put it in a box or a satchel next to the ark and send it. The one thing, I will say, there's a kind of mix here. It's syncretistic. They do know some true things about this God and about Israel's history, as we'll see. And so there's a mix of true things and false things. One of the things they probably get right here is at least the things are gold. They say, well, why are they gold? (laughs) That's expensive. Because there's a value to gold. It's just a guess, but they want to be respectful to this deity. So they're not going to send him images of bronze or even of silver. They're going to send him the best they've got. The best they have is gold. There's a respectful attitude, even though they're just guessing. You can see this respect also in the cart that's being used. Verse 7, now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And we know that one of the reasons for these milk cows is as a test to confirm whether Yahweh really is the one afflicting their land. So we'll return to that in a second. But even with their uncertainty, as they're guessing, here's gold value to respect Yahweh in case it's him, and also the cart. Notice it has to be a new cart. Why a new cart? Because if you use an old cart... What if this deity doesn't like something the old cart was used for before? So out of respect, let's make sure it's a new cart. And the milk cows, let's make sure there's never been a yoke on them. Part of that is for a test. If you've never been yoked, it's unlikely you're just going to walk a straight line. So that'll confirm this is Yahweh. But also, I don't know if they knew this, but twice in the law of Moses, when a sacrifice of a cow is required, it has to specifically be one who never had a yoke upon it. Some kind of ritual cleanness, maybe, is suggested in that. I don't know if they knew that, but certainly there is an attitude of respect toward Yahweh because they've seen his power. So they're willing to return the ark, they're willing to give glory to Yahweh because they're desperate, because they're respectful, and finally, and most importantly, it's because they are humble. We reach the most important set of theological statements in this passage when we get to verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 here, the priests and diviners say, so you must give glory to the God of Israel, perhaps, which is what the king of Nineveh had said, perhaps, he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. When the ark was captured in battle and left, people said, where's the glory? Here's the glory. When the glory of God left Israel, it went over to Philistia to get glory there. And that's exactly what's happening. He's getting glory in a foreign land, in Philistia. They say, give him glory. The Philistines, like I've suggested before, they don't convert at this point. It's not that Philistia suddenly becomes a nation that worships Yahweh. We don't have any clear evidence that that happened. There may have been, perhaps there were, were some Philistines who converted. We read of Gittites later. We'll see that. Ittai the Gittite who follows David. So that's from Gath in Philistia. And 600 men with him. So some may have converted at this point to Yahweh. But by and large, that was not what happened. Just like Nineveh that turned to God and then later was wicked again. So we don't see this as a conversion of the whole nation. And yet, even that being the case, when they humble themselves, pagans, when they, the Philistines, humble themselves before the Lord to give Him glory, He hears. He receives the glory. He lightens His hand off of them. God responds to their humility. I mean, all of us would rather keep the glory for ourselves. Even as Christians, look, we want to keep the glory for ourselves. And glory is when you are of such a person and you do such things that people look at you and are amazed. You have great wealth. You're doing very well in business. You have a lot of friends. Many people think highly of you. You've got large savings for the future. You have glory. There is a weight to your life. And God enters into our life and he says, give that to me. He said, I give that to you. I've been working really hard to get this. Give that to me. Are you going to give it back? Maybe, maybe not. And you have to make decisions. Are you going to give God the glory? This is incredibly embarrassing for the Philistines to give this glory to God. It is a sort of acknowledging that we're not glorious and you are glorious for them to send the ark back after a great victory, where I'm sure Philistines have died too in the battle, and now to say, we won, but we lost, and Yahweh's stronger than ours, so we've got a beheaded Dagon to prove it, that's humiliating. We want people to look up to us, not look down on us, but God loves when we lower ourselves, humble ourselves. Eve extending her hand, reaching up to the tree. What a great picture of Satan himself reaching up to the throne of God. And it's what we all do. We don't want God over us, his mighty hand above us. We want that autonomy. We want to be free. We want to be loved. We want to be glorified. And God says, that's not how this works. You sit back down or I'll sit you back down. And the Philistines were willing to sit down. Yahweh says, my glory I will not give to another. And we fashion our little paper crowns on our head. And God says, take that off. No competition. The Philistines are willing, at a point of desperation, to take off the paper crown and simply acknowledge that Yahweh is too strong for them. You can also see their humility when you go to verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? God's hand was against Egypt and Egypt's gods, we read in Scripture. A mighty, strong, hard hand against them, crushing the land like this. And Pharaoh, you remember, stiffened his neck until it broke. He would not relent, and send God's people away. And what ends up happening? Even Pharaoh's own servants tell him in the end, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? He didn't understand. And after what looked like a slight relenting on Pharaoh's part, he stiffens again and sends his great army, the greatest army on the face of the earth at that time, into the walls of water that were the Red Sea. There goes Pharaoh with his mighty hand. And here comes God with his mighty hands and smashes them. So now, long afterward, the Philistines have heard about this. Because Egypt's no small nation. And they say, you know, it really didn't work well for Egypt. (laughs) who's probably still recovering hundreds of years later, it did not really work well for them to oppose Yahweh. So why should we? That's the question. Why should we oppose him? God had said, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host," and surely he did. So they're asking the question, why should we harden our hearts and make this any harder than it needs to be? It's been seven months. Do we want to go another seven months? We'll be dead. Everyone will be dead. We don't want to go another seven months. Really, the answer to that question, why should you harden your heart? Typically, the answer is, it's just stubbornness. And you know the experience in your own life when God is calling you to something, but it's embarrassing. You did something, you got to acknowledge it was the wrong thing you did. And you know you need to acknowledge it, but look, you don't want to. And if you're committed to not acknowledging it, in marriage, in church, anywhere, committed to this, here comes God's mighty hand. And that's their question. Why should you harden your heart against this mighty hand? It's not going to go well. But that stubbornness that just holds on to it. And we all reach this fork in the road, every single one of us, myself included. And you may be at one of those forks. If, if you don't know Christ, that fork in the road is where the cross is set before you. And God says... I will forgive you for your life of rebellion against me, but this is the way you do it. You humble yourself like a little child. It's the only way, and you trust in my provision, and not anything in you. You trust in my provision only. You've got to give glory to Yahweh. Bow the knee. Get off your throne. If you do it, salvation. If you don't, the way of the transgressor is hard or it may be that you're a believer and the discipline of God presses against your life like a mighty hand let me just ask you the question why should you harden your heart what revenue what return are you going to get on that investment it will only make your life worse and worse it's what Jesus had said to Saul it's hard to kick against the goads the little pokey things they use for the cattle to move them along and if the cattle kick the goats, you just get stabbed by the goads. You thought it hurt to be pricked. It hurts a lot more to be stabbed. Is that where you are this morning? With the goad behind you, needing to surrender that unsurrendered part of your life to Yahweh, but you don't want to. Why? It could be stubbornness. You might think it's too hard. What's required of me is too hard. But you know what's so much harder is not surrendering it. And having the hard and heavy hand of God against you, whether for discipline or judgment. It's like Naaman the leper, where if he would just dip seven times, just dip seven times, he'd be healed. If God had required of Naaman, the leper, captain of Syria's armies, to do something hard, he'd do it. Because then it's like, yeah, I did it. But since it's an embarrassing thing, go dip out there in the water seven times, he won't do it. He almost keeps his leprosy for life out of mere stubbornness till his servants intervene. It would be good for all of us in this case to be like Philistines. Why should you harden your hearts? So they actually soften their hearts. Out of desperation, with respectfulness, here with humility, they are willing to give glory to Yahweh. Now, that is the first part of this message in this text. The second is, when they give glory to Yahweh, the amazing thing is he's willing to receive it, which is where we turn now. It is equally surprising that he would receive it. And I say that because, to be frank with you, the offering that is given by the Philistines, that is recommended by their diviners, is terrible. I don't know if you saw that. It's really bad. It's a really bad thing to offer to Yahweh. First of all, just in verse 2, we begin with the fact that they are diviners, <laughs> which are bad. Uh, priests, we understand in Israel, of course, these priests were priests of false gods, bad. And then diviners was actually forbidden in the law of Moses. They were not to be any diviners. If you're wondering what a diviner is, we actually read something of their practice in Ezekiel, speaking of the king of Babylon when he's practicing divination. It says, quote, he shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. If you read that in your, read through the Bible in a year, maybe you wonder why he looks at the liver. But these were practices developed by the nations that did not know Yahweh, diviners trying to guess, trying to figure out the will of the deities something bad happens, the crop fails. Now you turn to the diviners and you say, you guys need to figure out what is wrong. Why is there a God angry at us? Well, of course, they don't know why and Yahweh hasn't told them. So what they do is they come up with stuff. So they take some arrows, shake them around, throw them on the ground. They fall in a certain pattern we sinned. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. Or you cut open an animal. And this was widespread in the ancient world. You cut open an animal, pull out that liver. And it's kind of like palm reading for modern fortune tellers based on you know this direction, that direct direction. Pattern on the liver of this animal. We're innocent. So that's what the diviners were. It was basically an attempt to get revelation from the gods apart from Yahweh. And therefore, Yahweh would not accept that And he expressly forbade it in Deuteronomy 18. He said, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. The next time we find a diviner in 1 Samuel, it's in chapter 28. It's the witch of Endor. Not a reputable figure. So that's the first problem is it's diviners who are an abomination to the Lord. Now, what's interesting with these diviners is they do know something about the true God. You saw that in verse 6. They talk about Egypt. They know something about him. But not having the law, they are, as I said, just guessing. It's all guesses. How do we appease the angry deity? So you get to verse 5, and they say, we've got the perfect idea. You must make images. (laughs) Well, that's not a perfect idea at all. That is actually expressly forbidden many times by Yahweh. He does not like images. His primary anger, his anger is primarily against images. They don't know that, gotta make images. So, well, hold up. Philistine diviners say, well, listen, listen. Yeah, they are images, okay. Didn't know that was bad, now we do, okay. But listen, hear me out. Images of rats. Also not aware that rats are an unclean animal to Yahweh, forbidden from sacrifices. Didn't know that. Okay, well, tumors? (laughs) Not a great idea either. So, a nasty part of the body there, unclean animals, and their images. On top of that, they put the ark on a cart, and you, as Bible scholars, have an advantage that they didn't because you know that later in the career of David, when he plans to bring the ark into Jerusalem, he sets it on a cart. And Uzzah, one of the drivers of the cart, is killed because you are not allowed to put the ark on a cart. You're supposed to put golden poles in the side and carry it on your shoulders, and only Levites, only Levites, these are Philistines, it's on a cart. So God's people, Uzzah at least, will die because of this very practice later. And then on top of everything, the cherry on top is that, poor Philistines in a sense, They're also holding out the possibility that Yahweh isn't involved. (laughs) You know, I don't know in their own minds, you know, Dagon fell just right. (laughs) I don't know how they justify that. You know, he fell just right and his hands just popped off. His head popped off on the second day. But you do see that because that's the point of their test. Verse 7, yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And then verse 9 explains that. Watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. I mean, it's a good test because if they're, they've never had a yoke, they're not going to go straight. So the test is they got to go straight on this road and their calves are at home. So it'd be very unnatural for these cows to take that cart and go to Beth Shemesh, the nearest city there in Israel. So it's a good test, right up the Sorek Valley from Ekron, take you right up to the city of the Levites, Beth Shemesh. So it's a test in that way. But even that, it just reminds us of their ignorance. They don't know. Even at this point, they don't know. Did Yahweh do this? It seems that way, but maybe we're wrong. Maybe Dagon's angry at us. We don't know. That is why it's so amazing when you put all of that together that God condescends to accept this offering and to receive from them the glory that they're trying to give to Him. See it again in verses 10 to 12. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, slight incline there, going up, lowing as they went, probably because a force outside of them is forcing them that direction. Maybe they're lowing for their calves. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. We'll see more of that next week. Why would God let this little scheme work? (laughs) And then why would he lighten his hand after this abomination that they've offered to him? Because God loves humility, even when it's in Manasseh, even when it's in the Philistines, even when their attempt to give God glory and to humble themselves is imperfect to say the least. Still, it's the humility that God sees, and he's willing to receive glory as they offer it to him. God has never yet rejected anyone who has humbled himself or herself before him. Not one person. Believer, unbeliever, someone who truly humbles himself before Yahweh is not immediately destroyed, even if that would have happened otherwise. There's a relenting that God is willing to do. Manasseh, Nineveh, all sinners, all of us who have turned to Christ. This humility What is God's hand pressing you to do today? There it is, pressing. It may be pressing you to turn from a life of sin and to accept Christ as the Savior, the only Savior. To enter in and you say, ah, I can't be like one of those Christians. You know, I see them on the news. It's embarrassing. And I see these Christians around. There's some I don't really like. I don't want to be one of those Christians. Would you die for that forever? Don't let stubbornness keep you out of literally paradise. Paradise. It's yours. It's free. There's Christ. Trust him. It's yours today. But you have to give glory to Yahweh and not keep it for yourself. You may be a believer and it's the spirit of the living God who's been prodding your conscience and you're trying to suppress it, but you know it's wrong what you're doing. And you're trying to suppress it, and you're thinking, I just can't surrender this part of my life. Listen, you've got to surrender this part of your life. Don't you see that Yahweh, He is good, He is loving, He is merciful, He receives us in our weakness. He does not accept competition. Even in His children, He wants an entire loyalty from us, a devotedness from us, just like He gives to us, and we return it to Him, and therefore... Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time. And if that's scary to you, cast all your cares upon Him, because He cares for you. Whatever you do, give glory to Yahweh. Humble yourself, and He will receive